Support for this podcast comes from Outdoor Supply Hardware, inviting listeners to OSHA's big anniversary sale celebration, May 20th through the 26th, featuring daily deals, $15,000 in giveaways, 20% off store-wide on Saturday and Sunday, and a lot more. Learn more at OSH.com. From KQED. Support for this podcast comes from Aegis Living. To prepare mom for next steps in life, families know that care means more than trained professionals. It's knowing mom is active, making friends, and happy. That's Aegis Living. Short-term respite stays now available. AegisLiving.com. From KQED. Good morning. This is the California Report. I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. Other than governor, being California's attorney general is arguably the most coveted political job in California. It makes you the Golden State's top prosecutor. You get tons of attention and the job can serve as a launching pad to higher office like it did for Vice President Kamala Harris. Well, the Attorney General's position will soon be vacant, and lots of people want the gig. With more, here's KQED's Katie Orr. Like so many before him, California Attorney General Javier Becerra is moving up. Becerra has been tapped as President Joe Biden's nominee for Secretary of Health and Human Services. His confirmation is likely now that Democrats control the U.S. Senate. Becerra's resignation would mean Governor Gavin Newsom gets to pick a new AG for the state. And the competition is stiff, says Democratic consultant Brian Brokaw, who's worked for Harrison Newsom. It is a very powerful position. It's a very unique position. There's a reason why it's so sought after now and every election year. There's an old joke, AG stands for aspiring governor. That may be one reason Brokaw says the job is drawing a lot of interest. I certainly know there are people in Washington who would be willing and interested in coming back to serve in the role. I think there are a lot of people in Sacramento and throughout the state who are interested in the position. Several Democrats well-known around the Capitol have been mentioned as contenders, including Sacramento Mayor and former Senate President Daryl Steinberg and Oakland Assemblyman Rob Bonta. Both have good relationships with Newsom. The names of Los Angeles Congressman Ted Lieu and Adam Schiff are also in the mix. There's also a push to appoint a woman. Loyola Law School professor Jessica Levinson says Newsom will likely want someone he feels comfortable with. He may take gender or racial diversity into consideration. And Levinson says Newsom has shown he likes to break barriers with his appointments. I just think that Governor Newsom really loves being a king or queen maker, and he wants to put his stamp on the next big up-and-comer. Whoever the pick, he or she won't be in the same situation as Becerra was. He served during the entire Trump administration, filing more than 120 lawsuits against the president. And while that put Becerra in a very public-facing position, Levinson says the next attorney general probably won't be as visible. We now have a federal administration where California will probably be working with that administration, will be supporting the administration, and that is just a very, very different job. However, Levinson says the next AG will probably still spend a lot of time pressing California's case on environmental and immigration issues. Former governor and former attorney general Jerry Brown agrees the job will be different under the Biden administration. But he says there will still be plenty to do. The appetite for litigation is endless, and the opportunities to sue people 
are endless. So don't worry about the lawyers uh, sitting around the water cooler uh, twiddling their thumbs. They'll find plenty of paper to push around. Maybe while dreaming about what office they might hold next. For the California Report, I'm Katie Orr in Sacramento. The state is adding hospital beds to help ease the pressure on Los Angeles area hospitals because of the pandemic. Jackie Fortier of KPCC has more. This will mean more regular beds and ICU beds at Pacifica Hospital of the Valley in Sun Valley. And the state is reopening Pacific Gardens Medical Center in Hawaiian Gardens, which had closed four years ago. Those two moves will add 263 beds to the region's supply. The state will provide staff. More beds act like a pressure valve, allowing overburdened hospitals to transfer more patients. Things have improved slightly in LA, but there is still more than 7,000 COVID-19 patients hospitalized across the county, straining hospital staff and supplies like oxygen. Health officials say LA's hospitals can't continue to cope with such a large number of patients for much longer. For the California Report, I'm Jackie Fortier in Los Angeles. And in education, state legislators and school officials are raising concerns over Governor Gavin Newsom's plan to restart in-person learning in California public schools. KQED politics reporter Guy Marzarotti says the plan came under fire at a state Senate hearing yesterday. San Jose Senator Dave Cortese says despite the fanfare around Newsom's goal to start reopening next month. The fact of the matter is what we're really saying is most schools won't open. That's because plenty of disagreements remain, including over a plan to test students every week for coronavirus. That would be an expensive and complicated lift for superintendents, says Shelly Viramontes of the Campbell Union School District. The requirement for the student testing really made no sense to me. Meanwhile, teachers unions say the virus is too widespread to bring kids back. The Newsom administration argues school outbreaks are rare and fast action is needed to return before the year ends. For the California Report, I'm Guy Marzarotti. Some California prisoners are getting the COVID-19 vaccine, but the virus is still spreading in state correctional facilities and killing inmates. KQED's Marco Seiler-Gonzalez reports that health experts fear the worst is yet to come. Just over 3,000 inmates have gotten their first dose of the vaccine, but it still takes a few weeks to take effect. It doesn't matter if you vaccinate a zillion people, if they are crowded together, they're going to spread COVID very efficiently. Dr. Peter Chin Hong is a professor of medicine and infectious disease specialist at UC San Francisco. He says a lot of inmates are older and already in poor health. The risk of these individuals after contracting COVID in terms of doing poorly and dying is higher than your average general population. In a statement, a spokesperson for the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation said the system has already released 24,000 inmates overall since March. For the California Report, I'm Marco Siler Gonzalez in San Diego. COVID-19 has spread like wildfire through California's prisons and jails. To reduce caseloads and deaths, the state has prioritized certain groups of inmates for early release. But who gets to get out and who stays behind bars? Reporter Lucy Kopp has a closer look. When Paul Aline got out of prison this past July, He immediately entered a state-mandated quarantine for two weeks before going home to his family. Aline had just served 24 years in prison and remembers vividly the morning he left. So two officers come to the door, and they're like, you're Aline, right? And I'm like, yeah. I said, where are we going now, upstairs? They go, hell no. 
We're going to L.A. You ready? At the time of Aline's release, San Quentin was reeling from an outbreak of COVID-19 cases and a severe shortage of medical staff. Things seemed to improve this fall, but recently, numbers have surged again to over 45,000 cases in California prisons. The situation at San Quentin prompted the state to ramp up its early release efforts for so-called non-non-nons, those in prison for non-serious, non-violent, non-sexual crimes. But someone like Aline, who is serving a life sentence for conspiracy to commit murder for hire, uh, attempted murder and robbery, was out of luck because his crime is labeled as violent. Aline ended up getting out because he was found suitable for parole, not because he qualified under pandemic guidelines. Vanessa Nelson Sloan with Lifer Support Alliance says there's more nuance to these labels. The public has a, a, a really warped perception of prisoners, but lifers in particular. They seem to see all of these folks as totally bloodthirsty, unaccountable murderers with, with no remorse. And that is not the case. While the recidivism rate for non-lifers is a little over 60%, for lifers, it's in the single digits. Sam Lewis leads the Anti-Recidivism Coalition in L.A. In the first year of release, they have nothing than 1% recidivism rate. In the third year of release... They have less than a 3% recidivism rate. A 2008 California Supreme Court ruling granted people with life sentences the ability to earn release if the parole board decides they're no longer a threat to society. Aline says through self-help programs and college courses at San Quentin... I had some very poignant moments in groups where I realized the totality of the harm I had done to someone. But the release of someone like Aline can create a lot of controversy for victims and their families. They're triggered, they're traumatized, they're having night tears. That's Patricia Wenskunas of the Crime Survivors Resource Center. She's seeing firsthand the impact of these early releases and understands why people are scared. Maybe this person did serve their time, but that doesn't mean that that person now is not going to come after that person. They, I mean, there's no guarantee either way. Over 30,000 people are serving life sentences in California. And Aline says he left behind many lifer friends who've transformed as much as he has. There's a lot of guys that, that are ready to go home. And I think that if someone looked at a lot of people's records, they could have picked a whole bunch of people that could have been lifers that could have been let go. Aline and other lifers want the state to look beyond the most politically palatable offenders for release and consider those serving long-term sentences too. For the California Report, I'm Lucy Kopp in Los Angeles. This week's presidential inauguration featured no less than three different versions of Amazing Grace, including this one from nurse Lori Marie Key. KQED's Chloe Veltman spoke with California artists with strong ties to this old English hymn. For years, there's been this link between Amazing Grace and U.S. presidents all along the political spectrum. It was played on the bagpipes at Ronald Reagan's funeral. And Barack Obama's singing of Amazing Grace in Charleston, South Carolina in 2015, following a mass shooting that left nine black people dead, is widely considered one of the most powerful moments of his presidency. Inglewood-based gospel music composer and church choir director Margaret Pleasant Duroe says there's no song quite like Amazing Grace for capturing the black Christian experience. Amazing Grace means something helped us. It was grace that brought us safe this far, 
and grace will lead us on. And the song has also reached millions outside the church because it's all about redemption, says folk singer Judy Collins, who spent part of her childhood in L.A. Collins released her version of Amazing Grace in 1970 while struggling with alcohol addiction. It's a powerful song which reaches all kinds of people. Collins says it doesn't matter who you are. Once you hear Amazing Grace, it sticks. For The California Report, I'm Chloe Veltman. You can hear more of Chloe's exploration of Amazing Grace on this week's California Report magazine on this station or download the magazine's podcasts wherever you get your podcasts. And that's the California Report for Friday, January 22nd, a production of KQED Public Radio. Our engineers are Katie McMurrin and Danny Bringer, with help from Seal Muller. Our producers are Kate Wolf, Mary Franklin Harvin, and Holly J. McDeed. Our senior editor is Angela Corral. I'm Saul Gonzalez. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great weekend and talk on Monday. Support for the California Report comes from Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy includes Schmidt Futures, focused on finding exceptional people and helping them do more for others together on the web at SchmidtFutures.com. The James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. Learn more at Irvine.org. And Paint Care, now with 770 drop-off sites in California where households and businesses can recycle their leftover paint. More at PaintCare.org. Did you ever wonder what it's like to live alone, hidden in the woods, not speaking to a single soul for 30 years? Or wander the desert, uncover a hidden well, and dive to the bottom of the deepest water hole for 2,000 miles? The Snap Judgment Podcast takes you there with amazing stories told by the people who live them, with an original soundscape that drops you directly into their shoes. Snap Judgment. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Did you ever wonder what it's like to live alone, hidden in the woods, not speaking to a single soul for 30 years? Or wander the desert, uncover a hidden well, and dive to the bottom of the deepest water hole for 2,000 miles? The Snap Judgment Podcast takes you there with amazing stories told by the people who live them with an original soundscape that drops you directly into their shoes. Snap Judgment. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts.